Cherry 91.5. It's Coffee with Corey. I'm here talking to our general manager all about Sukkot. And this is something that's a feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. And you made a good point. You said there's there's more. You know, there's yeah. not, this isn't all there is. There's more to celebrate. You know, it's funny because I've been studying this for so many years. And, you know, each feast, I feel like God shows me something new. And it's because, you know, I just don't come out and share the same thing every year. It really is a lot of, there's certainly some things that you just are consistent that you can share. But there's also new things. And last year, I really started to dig into this feast in, in a new way because I was looking at it from a different perspective. And I started to ask that question, is there more to Tabernacles and the pilgrimage feast, there's three great pilgrimages, the Unleavened Bread, Pentecost, and this one. And uh, is there more to these, why these three feasts, why there, there are these longer feasts, things that go on for a period of time? And uh, kind of was just kind of theorizing some things. And if I'm correct, the spring and the fall feasts are, are actually connected. They're not mm-hmm. separate kind of times. But they're really celebrating the same thing. So this isn't just about end times, that there's an underlying current in these that, that's, that's sometimes something we can see and observe and, and celebrate God in. So, you know, between the spring and the fall feast, you have, well, actually in the midst of the spring and summer, you have the counting of the Omer and goes from Passover in the spring to Pentecost in the summer. And that wraps up the first two pilgrimage feasts, the Unleavened Bread and Pentecost. And it seems like a unique event celebrating and remembering the exodus from Egypt because, of course, you had Passover in Egypt. Then you had the 50-day walk to Mount Sinai where you had Pentecost. So those are very connected. So that feast also includes seven days when they ate only unleavened bread. Made sense. It was at the end of that long journey at Mount Sinai that they met with God, heard his voice. The elders ate with God on the mountain, and then they received the law. Um, well, received the broken tablets at that point. But, you know, that unleavened bread made sense because they had to leave quickly. So that was a logical ceremony and all. But at the end of the summer, those earlier feasts and the counting feels rather similar to the 50 days between a little one when the king is in the field to walk with you and meet with you and you hear his voice like the sound of a, a trumpet every day and even more so on Rosh Hashanah with the 100 blasts And Moses is doing the exact same things. On the 40th day, Yom Kippur, Moses comes down the mountain with a new set of tablets, and a goat goes up Olivet and disappears in the same place that Jesus ascended, which would have been, you know, in the midst of the counting of the Omer. At Tabernacles, we gather to celebrate and eat in God's presence for an entire week. But instead of unleavened bread and in a hurry, it's fruit and it's worship at the end of the harvest. And the great last day of Sukkot feels a lot like Pentecost. Much of the Bible is written in this chiastic form or or like an object's reflection in a mirror. So is it possible that instead of these three pilgrimage events, there's really just one three-part celebration of our exodus or journey from slavery to marriage to God? We're called to be the bride of Christ. Jesus is called the bridegroom. There's literally a marriage supper in heaven. Mount Sinai was considered to be like a marriage hoopah, and it was God's intention to become one with the Israelites at Sinai, but of course they refused back then. Are the three pilgrimage feasts really a repeating shadow and type of that first exodus from Egypt of and of what will happen at the second exodus when Jesus returns 
take us home to heaven and the new earth. So if you think of it as one exodus from the, the Israelites as slaves and the second exodus as when Jesus comes to get us from a, a rapture point of view, what does this all make sense to? So I want you to listen to Jeremiah 16. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that it shall no, no more be said, the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he has driven them. For I will bring them back into their land, which I gave to their fathers. And last for the day is great, so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. And that's Jeremiah 30. So the Bible is full of prophetic scripture that can only fit into a time like the thousand year reign. And the Talmud, which the rabbis wrote, speaks a good bit on eternity. Of course, the whole purpose of the days of awe is to seal your name in the book of life. So while the first part of the second exodus has occurred with the creation of the nation of Israel and the return of millions of Jews, there awaits another eternal aspect to that second exodus. In the same way that God brought them out of Egypt in the first exodus and then brought them to the promised land, they can be confident that God who gathered them from the nations will gather them to himself in that next and final exodus. Of course, the obvious stumbling block for them has not changed. The Messiah was, is, and will always be the one who moves on their behalf, but they don't recognize him. Yeshua literally means salvation, so not recognizing him means not finding salvation, and he is the key to the Passover, Pesach, and every other feast. Get a look at that Jewish lamb coming up next. 